Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. That was nice and solid. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> as you can tell by the fact that we're back to silly voice intros, we are not talking about depressing states of abuses in media and culture at large today. Nope, all the abuses we'll be talking about are largely theoretical and intellectual. I mean, yeah, we could we can get back there from here. Like, it, it's not a long trip, because we're talking about nostalgia. And man, it's got pitfalls. But that's not where we're starting. Where are we starting, Jeremiah? Uh, we're starting off with a couple of, uh, well, on a sad note, um, the passing of three people, uh, in particular the actors Arlie Ermey and Harry Anderson. And uh, Arlie the... Ermey, of course, best known as being the angry uh, drill sergeant in... Um, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Thank you. God, blanked. That's and uh, Harry Anderson, and also Harry Anderson, who is uh, best known as the judge from Night Court and other things, but primarily the judge from Night Court. Either Judge Harry Stone <laughs> in Night Court or Harry the Hat in Cheers. Harry the Hat. Yes. Is that the same character? Like, is... No, same actor. <laughs> But not the same no, I know, but I mean, like, is is this one of those like weird intertextual show things where like be- we're we're meant to read that before he became a judge, he wore a hat and scammed people in bars? Um, it could be. It was never really stated. I think it's the fact that Harry Anderson just like playing that type of character. That's fair. I feel like he was largely playing that that like Jeff Goldblum esque ex- exaggerated version of yourself sort of thing. Right. Well. I, I mentioned on my Facebook post that Harry Anderson, before we had Penn and Teller, was sort of like the magic guy on television. Yeah, he was. He's like sort of the comedy magician of. I mean, the back in the ancient past when all we knew were like VHS tapes and uh, <laughs> uh, and how did we transmit sound? I think it was uh, oh, uh, tin cans on string. That was it. Right. But yeah, he uh, he would go on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and do like comedic little magic tricks and he would find a way to incorporate them within whatever show he was doing he actually had a stand-up act in which he was basically what the amazing jonathan does only not like the amazing jonathan yeah and he's he's i mean relatively young he's what 60 something yeah 65 i think and he was still doing Uh, sleight of hand stuff he lived in new orleans and did a lot of like uh charity work in terms of like helping rebuild new orleans after katrina yeah that is awesome and sad. Uh, well, I mean, it's awesome he did that. It's sad that he is not here anymore. Also, yeah. I, I'm sorry, I jumped past Arlie Ermey and like dove right into Harry Anderson, partly because I hadn't thought about him in a really long time. Well, and I feel bad that, about that. Harry <laughs> Anderson, for me, was a much larger part of my life than Arlie Ermey was. I adore yeah. Arlie Ermey, but I, I, I watched I mean, a lot I, of Night Court growing up. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, even if I didn't know you, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 you seem the type. Uh, <laughs> Because it's a weird, funny show. What? <laughs> it is a weird, funny show. But uh, I don't know. Arlie Ermey occupies a weird sort of space pop culturally. I mean, in a in a similar way with Harry Anderson, he kind of just played one role once he became famous for that thing. Right. Well, and that's because he wasn't an actor by trade. Harry Anderson was a sleight of hand. He was a street performer who became a comic who became a sitcom star. Mm. Whereas Arlie Ermey was a drill sergeant who yeah. then became a technical advisor and then sent a tape to Stanley Kubrick for a technical advisory job, and they're like, you're amazing, I want you on screen. Yeah, wasn't he originally like the technical advisor for the role that he ended up just playing? 
Yeah, and like, he was. He also ended up uh, playing a small role in like Apocalypse Now because he's just so charismatic. Yeah. That the directors were like, "We want you on screen." Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, it's, it's always really weird to me to reflect on the fact that like he constantly plays these military roles, but like the the one he's most famous for is in a movie that's really critical of like militaristic ideology. Well, and it's only... fascinating that well, that's sort of just w- what he is. Well, and that's part of the thing that what makes Orleami fascinating is he was able to straddle the divide. Yeah. Because everybody loves Orleami, even though Orleami more than likely probably was conservative. But it never yeah. mattered. <laughs> like, he, he became this, like, er symbol for drill sergeants and for just like hard-ass military personnel in general right uh, i mean hell he, that was that was essentially like in house md which is a show i don't talk about nearly enough uh he was house's dad and it was basically he was just the drill sergeant from uh from full metal jacket but older now well like that's and, that's that really seemed to just be what he was well and it's sort of important to understand like the what we think of a drill sergeant now is largely because of Arlie Ermey. Yeah, like because he... before Arlie Ermey, the drill sergeant was either the guy who was only slightly smarter than the boob who was the star of the show. Like he might be Dean Martin to Jerry Lewis's private. Yeah, or you had yeah. private pile in which the drill sergeant was not as dumb as pile, but just as incompetent. Yeah, it is interesting to think of the like the sorts of military movies we right. had like in the, the 60s and before and even before that the drill sergeant was respected but he wasn't sort of like the as... the, the terror figure right he was he was always like the more respected the guy who was like he got the job done he was a swell mm-hmm. man arliumi played because of his technical uh, and i guess because of the time he was in the military it's like mm. the characters he played were largely like unhinged <laughs> like the I mean he also nightmares I mean I remember later on also him like hosting things on the history channel and stuff he like had that two was... shows one in which he's answering a mailbag in which he just answered military questions and yeah, that was the one I saw enemy persona he was like a pro wrestler he had a persona and he just <laughs> never broke it <laughs> that's very true I like that comparison and I'm pretty sure uh, he might have. I'm sure I have. I, I don't know about it, but I'm pretty sure he might have even done a WWE match or been involved I mean, who, in some way. I mean, at this point, who hasn't? Uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like we are all we are all within kayfabe now. Like we're all part <laughs> of the 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 world wrestling uh, entertainment. <laughs> there's no ba- in the postmodern world. There is no boundary between wrestling and ourselves, Jeremiah. Right. And also, we have to mention the Czech-American filmmaker Milos Forman, who was an immigrant from Czechoslovakia, who left during the communist uprising, and made such movies as One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, I knew that. Like, this is the one I didn't know, and now I feel stupid, because that's why I recognize the name. Amadeus? Yeah. People versus God. Larry Flint. And nobody like this is. And wow, hold on. looking back, man okay, in the sorry. man on the moon. Oh, jeez. Which is the only movie in *Force Awakens* came along that I saw four times in theaters. How did I not have this director's name just in my head? Like that's embarrassing. 
Yeah, no, no, Milos like, Forman is, uh, oh. he's part of the, what's called the Czech New Wave. Hmm. Um, believe it or not, the, the other countries that have New Wave as well, besides Italy and America. And, um... Uh, and, and France. And France, yes. Um... <laughs> By the way, I should I should uh, reiterate for those who don't know the new when anyone says a new wave, what they really mean is a generation of directors. Because every once in a while there will be like a decade in which you just a, a lot of great directors happen to come up at the same time, and yeah. they'll largely be called such and such wave, new wave, and that largely is mainly just about a period of time and less to do with like a particular style. Yeah, uh, they, they just they just about, all know each other, right? Um, unless you're like. Unless there's a specific term like neorealism or something, it's more just about a time and place in a particular part of the country or world, as opposed to an actual sort of like the uh, style or thing they are interested in. Yeah, not not necessarily stylistic connections. They just temporarily are near each other. And as you can imagine by what I just mentioned, Milos Forman was really interested in rebels or people that were legitimately he thought persecuted or mm. people who were on the fringes of society uh people versus larry flint was like he was very much like like first they'll come after pornographers then they come after the intellectuals so you have to mm. stick up free speech means you have to stick up for even the guy you think is a little bit filthy oh also directed hair huh. yes wow. he did a musical hair Sorry, despite I'm just, the fact I'm that he through. wasn't a fan of musicals he also did ragtime wow he's a fascinating I... director like it's it's because I know I've heard the name, but I also know I hadn't heard the name much, and right. it's weird considering how influential these movies are. And I think this is one of those things that becomes interesting, like when people want to talk auteur and all that kind of stuff. That there are a bunch of movies, there are tons of movies that we talk about just as movies, right. uh, like bro- broadly culturally. When I say we, I mean just dumb American moviegoers generally, right. since. Uh, uh, I am I my pop culture tastes go in every direction, so I only know a little bit about a lot of things. And one of the consequences are moments like this, where it's like, God, why didn't I have all of those connections already? It's well, because part of the uh, part of the downside of having this being the most movie obsessed we've ever been as a culture is the fact mm. that we tend to be obsessed with things that are easily identifiable. Yeah, and if you have a director with a particular style, it's easily identified. One of the reasons why everyone loves Tarantino is because you always know it's a Tarantino film. But yeah, yet, and we take a director that I'm really fond of, like J.C. Chandor, and the themes are recurrent, but the style is not. This is the same guy who did um, uh, Most Violent Year, mm. and. Um, Oh crap! I just forgot the other two movies. Margin, uh, Margin Call, and um, another movie he did with Robert Redford, which has no dialogue, in which he's just trapped on a ship. What? All is lost. Amazing. All is lost. He's only done three <sighs> movies, and they all of them really just sort of like interrogate the notion of the American dream. Hmm. Uh, but the style, if you if you were to look at them, there really isn't that much. He's very much like Sidney Lumet or Lumet. Hmm. 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Network, Murder on the Orient Express. These are all movies that in which the, st- he, the style fits the story, so you have to understand when you see the director's name, you go, oh, I know that name. Okay. Mm. And so I think when it gets to something like Milos Foreman, who, if you look at his body of work, they all have something about outsiders, people 
Yeah, uh, it's like looking, individuals. Looking, at the, looking at the list, I can make the connection in my head, but it's not like you, you have to, like, it's not as simple as being like, oh, the, it's it's like how Zack Snyder wants to desaturate the world. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Once in a while, the and make everything nest slow motion. doesn't really have the same sort of stylistic form as, say, Amadeus. And Amadeus yeah. doesn't have the same form as People vs. Larry Flint, because Milos Forman would tell you probably, why would they? These are three in different stories. God, I need to watch Amadeus again. Well, not only that, but Amadeus is sort of fascinating because it's about two rebels. And it's yeah. about almost like how art can consume you to the point of utter madness if you're not careful. And both of these men, I think, are truly portrayed as mad. Yeah, Spe- speaking of being consumed to the point of madness, we probably should move on at some point. Uh, we will, uh, but I want to bring up one thing. Oh, okay. Milos Foreman is one of the few directors to go, you know what? Courtney Love is more than what we're making her out to be. She can act. I can prove it to you twice. People versus Larry Flint and Man on the Moon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he had a really good eye for actors. All right, so moving on now to the point of the podcast. Sorry, I'm, I'm just like, I'm sort of remembering the People versus Larry Flint distantly. It's one of those movies that's like, I will watch it if it's on, but I hardly ever see it. Like, well, in, not... terms about, in terms of movies about free speech, mm. I recommend People versus Larry Flint and a movie by Mick Jackson called Denial, which is available yeah, on Amazon yeah. Prime, which I've talked about a lot. It talks about the more nuanced version of free speech of, okay, if you want this to be, if you want to say this, I should be allowed to say this in a rebuttal. Hmm. And also just, uh, I, I'm a big Woody Harrelson fan, and I, I think People vs. Larry Flint is one of the first movies I remember seeing him in and being like, oh, wow, you're not just the guy from Cheers, are you? If, if you love Woody Harrelson, I highly recommend, the movie's deeply flawed, but his performance is oh, amazing. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm talking about the movie I'm about to recommend. Oh, okay. The, the Glass Castle. Oh, I haven't seen that. The movie is deeply flawed, um deals with some incredible sort of intense themes about sexual abuse. Mm. Same guy who did uh, Short Term 12, which also dealt with uh, sexual abuse. Um, mm. But Woody Harrelson and the Glass Castle, even though the movie doesn't hold together, his performance is amazing. It's one I, feel of like that's, I feel like that's true for a lot of movies that Woody Harrelson is in. <laughs> All right, but now, moving on to Nostalgia. Yes, let's talk about the thing we were going to talk about today. Okay, so first <laughs> off, I want to differentiate between personal nostalgia and cultural nostalgia. Yeah, I like this division, because uh, I think it, a lot of times people will talk about both interchangeably and sometimes in the same conversation, and I think having this distinction is good. So do you want to, do, how do you want to go? Do you, do you just want to do the definitions and we, we pull them apart, or what are we doing? Uh, yeah, just to find them and then like try to pull them apart. You have examples of what we mean by that. Uh, personal nostalgia is when someone talks about, like, in my day. When someone tells you about how things used to be to for them. Specifically tied to that person. Like, this right. is what I this is what I remember. Right. This is this is me. Like, when you talk about how they don't make cartoons like they used to, and you talking about the cartoons you used to watch. Right. Whereas cultural nostalgia is much more of the good old days in a broader sense of they didn't always used to be like this. We used to have this. It's basically the I versus the we, the collective versus the individual. Mm. 
It's- yeah, the uh, the the yeah, cultural nostalgia. I think is just very much that nebulous golden age. That well, I, honestly, both of these are probably to different extents not real, right? Because even even personal nostalgia is highly tied to your own memory of what right. things were like. Which and they is, are incredibly intersectional in that sense. They yeah, like they they run into each other. Yeah, they run into each other pretty hard. But generally, I like if I'm thinking cultural nostalgia, I think of the. Uh, it, uh, honestly, if I think cultural nostalgia, the th- first thing that pops in my head is Nick at Night. Like, the world <laughs> the world of the past as constructed via sitcoms that we saw after the cartoons were over as kids. Donna like that, Reed, me, the Ozzy and Eddie yeah. show. Yeah, you Nick know what I mean? I feel, like, I feel like that is a very smart thing that I just said. I'm going to take a drink of coffee. <laughs> well, okay, perfect example. Uh, there's a movie out right now called Ready Player One. Yes, there he is, isn't there? That a lot of people seem to be enjoying and that I found quite tedious. I don't know. I will, I'll probably see it once it's out on video, but it's not a movie that I feel like I need to see in theaters. Uh, mainly just because the the the, cam, the the ad campaign for it with all the like alternate movie posters for movies that I would rather have watched yeah. was really <laughs> exhausting. Um, <laughs> cultural nostalgia is Ready Player One. It just all these sort of pop culture... Pop culture, fast cultural nostalgia. Just talking about the things that were popular back in the day. Like, well, I mean, basically, our current pop culture is almost nothing but that. Right, like it's, and that's Ready Player One is issue. just Ready Player One is just the most concentrated form of it that not only that we have ever seen, but that might be po- that might be the most possible with current technologies. I was listening <laughs> to a podcast called Critically Acclaimed with William William hmm. Bibiani and Whitney Seibold, and they made an interesting point. I had argued in my review that Steven Spielberg was the only person who could have directed this because anyone else, it would have been a dumpster fire as opposed to just technically competent and boring. (laughs) And they made the really good argument of he's too close to this. He's the wrong director. Yeah, I actually, I I think that that may be the side I come closer toward than yours. Although, I mean, the... I mean, he's technically competent as hell. I can't argue against that. Right. But but man, like speaking of the earlier conversation about like when we talk about movies versus when we talk about like movies as body of a director, like Steven Spielberg is cultural nostalgia right. almost at this point. Like he's both. Like what? Uh, I it, it's hard to divorce talking about like pop movie culture without talking a good portion of the time about Steven Spielberg. Right. And part of what they were arguing, which I agree with, is he's too close to this. Too much of what he's referencing is stuff that was being made while he was making movies. Mm. And so it's almost like there's like, these are his friends. And even though the Shining is, the Shining scene in the movie is impeccable, it's probably the best part because it's the one thing that Spielberg was able to do that he was that he cared about. <laughs> well, not only that, but like it wasn't just oh nostalgia. And this was him going, "I've obsessed over this because I'm a Kubrick fanatic. Look how look how almost to the to the crook and, na- crook and cranny of everything on the set, how I replicated everything to a T, and then played with it. Where everything else was just throwing out like little like." Buckaroo Banzai. I've said the name four times now. That's a reference. No, you oh, just... Oh, God. 
Do they? Do they just say it several times? That's, okay, it starts hurts. out with them trying to find a perfect outfit for this date, oh. and then he picks the outfit the Baku has, the suit with the little, like, not really tie tie. Yeah, the, the, it's the, a bow tie that's on top. Right. The best friend goes, Oh, Buckaroo Banzai, your favorite movie ever? You can't go dress oh, as Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, God. And then he goes to the bar and she's like, Wow, sweet Buckaroo Banzai. What? I said Buckaroo Banzai. I like that movie oh. too. To which oh, I wanted God. them to stop talking. Stop talking, oh. please. <laughs> oh, God. It's like it was written by me when I was 15. To oh. be fair, apparently, oh. apparently, I saw on social media that there's been an uptick and people actually wanted to see Buckaroo Banzai, and I'm absolutely okay with that. What I'm not oh. cool with is people going, "We should remake it, get Jammy Sisto for Buckaroo," and I'm wish again, I'm like, "Shut your dirty mouth! Could you Wait, not who? have picked?" Uh, there's there's no Buckaroo Banzai other than Peter Weller. I I I will fight anyone. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> Unless you're but picking yeah. Idris Elba, I'm not fine with anything you choose. Oh, wow. No, yeah. That's, God. <laughs> that is true, isn't it? I'm okay with Idris Elba playing anything. <laughs> wow. It's time you come to this conclusion. I came to it long ago. I mean, I knew it was true, but it wasn't until you until you said that just now that it's like, wow, I actually wouldn't have a problem with that. <laughs> Oh, and the beautiful thing man, is, Jeff Goldblum can still just play um, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's character in Bucky Bonsai. New Jersey was his New name. New Jersey. <laughs> Whose name I ironically couldn't think of, but all I could think of was Bruce Springsteen because of New Jersey. All right, I got it now. All right, fair enough. Right. <laughs> we got there. Uh, so we, okay, we, we got bogged down in talking about our definitions and then... Ready right. Player One and Buckaroo Banzai, as is our our uh, our want, but yeah. So so let's let's talk about what goes wrong with nostalgia. Then the problem with the mo- nostalgia is that it limits our ability to think of new things, and by mm-hmm. new, I should be more specific, new images, because movies are about images, and when you're so constantly trying to just give like a shout out to something without sort of recalculating it to your own needs it lose it becomes stale and it it doesn't feel like an image it feels more like a photograph yeah uh i i'm gonna i'm gonna temper my reflex to want to go into like postmodern theory because no one cares and i've right. learned to live with that but uh i mean hell uh, that is one of the things going back to the sort of spielberg connection here is like spielberg and lucas uh, I think are, are sort of that they're not the only people to blame for the kind of nostalgia trap that movies have been sinking deeper and deeper into for the past since the seventies. Right. But uh, they're definitely very close to the core of it. Right. But I mean, uh, but, and I'll, you know, a lot of that I could, I could cross that into all sorts of like various griping points because obviously it's profitable. Right. To, well, not to, only like, that, one... But at least in the early days, they were still giving us new images to go along with that. Right. They were like, using I mean, the nostalgia as a fee, not as the fuel, but as a way to put the fuel in and then tell a story through that in a sort of tone. Yeah. As, as like a springboard. Right. Uh, Cause I mean the, you know, there are, there are all sorts of stories about like 
you know, Star Wars being inspired by movie serials that they watched when they were kids right. and that sort of thing. But but I mean, the it's better that we got Star Wars than that, like, Spielberg and Lucas got to make a Buck Rogers movie like right. that, that that I think is empirically true. And and to 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 a lesser example, uh, to to the rest of the world, because they were wrong. But uh, <laughs> Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi wanted to make a movie about the shadow, but couldn't get the rights. So instead we got Darkman, which is perfect. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, because we, 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 you bring up Spielberg and Lucas, and Martin Scorsese. Oh, yeah, Scorsese. has a lot of homages in his movies, but the homages that you don't recognize them as homages. Mm. Because a perfect example, there's a scene in Raging Bull that... Uh, when Jake LaMotta busts down the bathroom door to get to his wife, who's locked the door and locked away in the bathroom, and he's in his, and t- he's in this immense seizure of rage, and he busts through the door, breaks in to tell her how much he loves her. Can't you see? I love you. Hmm. And it wasn't until I was walking, watching a documentary about movies with Scorsese that they showed a scene from a Vincent Minnelli movie called Two Weeks in a Small Town, and I saw that same scene with fucking Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> but it's a different... It's the same scene, but it's a different scenario. And he's trying to save his wife, who's about to like swallow too many pills. It's like a it's it's a similar visual and emotional beat, but like how they get there and what it's doing are different. Right, it's just like that image stuck with Scorsese, and so he used it for his own purposes to tell a different story. He took the idea of the image, infused it with a new idea, and then it became a new image. Because I think that's what I'm getting at. The images aren't yeah. That there's no new idea behind the image. The image is there for the image's sake. I feel like what I feel like if I were going to boil this down to a log line, it's the the problem tends to come down to nostalgia as a starting point versus nostalgia as an end in itself. Exactly. And I think nostalgia as an end in itself is epitomized by Ready Player One. Like that is hopefully we don't get any farther than that because I think we'll OD. I don't think it's I don't think it's healthy. (laughs) Speaking of, you keep going back to Ready Player One. I argue that I don't understand why Wade Watts is the main character. He doesn't yeah, yeah, care I, I, about anything. He's not really even interested in the revolution that's going on. It's <laughs> the character uh, played by um, I, I by re- by interchangeable young white guy. Go ahead. Right. Uh, no, but no, but the uh, <laughs> the female, the lady character, the woman character who plays a love interest. She's mm. actually the one with a with a motive, a backstory, and everything. Oh, she has like an actual arc. Yeah, well, she would if she was the main character. Ah, but the problem is once uh, he sees her in real life and sees that she's horribly disfigured, i.e., she has a birthmark on her face, and oh, he loves God. her anyway. Of course, she immediately crumbles and. Oh, and of course, and the whole point, the whole reason he's doing anything is to help her get vengeance on her father. It's re- it really doesn't make any sense why the roles aren't reversed. And this is what I mean by also nostalgia limiting us, because in the old days that would have made sense, but in a modern era, there's no reason why she can't be the hero. Yeah. Uh, other well, probably other than the fact that the the novel's writer also helped adapt the screenplay. That that probably right. is part of it. Not, yeah, uh, but, but I guess I what I'm drive... also talking about is the fact that we 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 have trouble updating the nostalgia to fit in our modern times. 
Yeah, I mean, the a lot of it, I mean, there's still a, a large part of me, as much as I love Star Wars and Star Wars-related things, that will always come back to a little bit wanting to beat up George Lucas for making everything about the, the monomyth, right. which is a handy little concept that is not nearly as universally applicable as people like to act like it is. Like, not all stories have to be the hero refusing the call and then going out and then eventually, like, learning shit and then coming back home. Yeah, it's great. It breaks down into a three-act structure well, even though those aren't required either. And, <laughs> I don't know, it's just, it's just, all of this gets tied up into, I guess, let me, let me there stop my... There is such a thing as a five-act structure. Yeah. I've read fucking Shakespeare, and so have a lot of us <laughs> under duress, whether we wanted to or not, because that's what we do in American education. But, uh, but I mean, even before then, like, like Greek plays didn't have an act break; it was just a play. Like right. the the idea that there is this this particular one structure is handy if you're doing like weird, grown out of Freudian analysis via Young, like Joseph Campbell was, but. The, like a lot of this stuff has become prescriptive. Right. It it builds walls around the stories that are marketable that will be picked up by studios because now they expect these structures and they expect you to get like the girl in the end. Wasn't that a complaint that people levied against the first Guardians of the Galaxy, i.e., one of the best Marvel movies? Was that like Quill didn't end up with Gamora at the end? I swear I saw angry people on the internet complaining about this. They probably did, but for me, Guardians of the Galaxy has a bigger issue, and it goes back to what I said about Ready Player One. It makes no sense why Gamora isn't the main character in Guardians. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> Gamora has the better... Ba everything about that movie applies better to Gamora than it does to Quill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That would be, honestly, that would be a great, uh, I, I would love to see that movie retold from each of the other characters' perspectives. Right. Like, because honestly, <laughs> any of the core cast, with I guess the exception of Groot, because it's better not to have Groot as the primary, that it would get too weird. Right. Uh, but like, having Gamora as main character or having Rocket as main character, I think would probably be more interesting stories. <laughs> well, and this goes back to what we're, what we're talking about, the limits of nostalgia is really, truly understanding when to break up the nostalgia because yeah. you have to understand that the way things used to be is not is a partly rose colored glasses and mm. b if you don't put it in context you don't understand why they were that way there's a yeah. reason why the majority of the uh, old serials had white heterosexual male heroes it's because they were required by the Hays Code to be that way. <laughs> yeah, because there were rules. Like, Literal rules, unlike the NBAA. That's another... Yeah. <laughs> but... I mean, there's all, like similar similar stuff with the uh, the comics code. Like, they started getting... Like, comics were, were too violent and also too gay, and so they had to be reined in. Well, it's uh... one of the things I gave credit for for Rampage... It's a mindless action movie. God, I loved Rampage more than I should have. <laughs> but two-thirds two -thirds of the trio of heroes are, are not white. The general, the stubborn colonel who wants to bomb everything, not white. There's a lot of mm. POC in that movie that get a lot of screen time. Yeah. And it it's, does so... Uh, and it's like, and it doesn't... 
And it, it does so in a way that doesn't appear to be trying to prove anything, but appears to just be representing the fact that this is kind of what the world looks like, but with giant monsters. Right, and I think people really <laughs> underestimate the fact that the, it really is impressive that The Rock's career is going as good as it is. God, you can't, the apparently The Rock it cannot be stopped. almost a point to go out of his way to point out his oceanic heritage. Yeah. And ah. even in Baywatch, there's a point in which he's holding up, like, I believe, a body, and there's lightning and thunder going on in the background as he, holds, he yells out, I am oceanic, and then go and kills the bad guy. Like, there's nothing. Oh, uh, that is just but, like, the best. But, like, there really is this sort of, like, I think people need to understand, like, that means something. That is an important thing within itself. I'm not actually 100% sure that Dwayne Johnson is not actually Maui, but that's a different conversation. (laughs) Oh, Moana, such a beautiful movie. A movie, by the way, that took the nostalgia and played with it. Yeah. And understood also the importance of nostalgia in terms of like how it plays into our cultural memory and also understanding how best to use it going forward. Yeah. I would say that that um, Black Panther plays with a lot of that as well. With the the sort of there's a there's an interesting kind of like nostalgia for a lost future in the Afrofuturism style that I think is just like it's just fascinating and, and wonderful. Right. Um, and I well, but don't want to get too much down that separate hole because I'm I'm not uh, ready to talk about all of the great things about Afrofuturism. I would have to do some more reading. Well, uh, I just okay, well, lo- I just love it stylistically, uh, and it's not something we see enough in media because it's drowned out by all of the boring kinds of nostalgia for like our boring futures. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, this leads into the the topic we want to talk about: the the myth of a monoculture. Yes, because Black Panther very clearly goes. This is our culture, and like Black Panther, we we really have to step back and appreciate the fact that Marvel gave. Ryan Coogler, over $200 million to make a movie that everyone could enjoy, but he made it specifically for black Americans. And just the fact that that was something <laughs> that Hollywood could finally accept was possible. Right. It's, it's embarrassing how great that is to finally see. Well, not only uh, that, it's embarrassing how much money it has made them. And it also that's... points out the fact, again, that Hollywood because of his own sort of cultural blindness, has cost his own damn self billions like, and wh- trillions of dollars. Like, one of the greatest viral clips that I saw last year was just a couple of a couple of black dudes looking at a poster for Black Panther in a movie theater and just freaking out and being like, is this how white people feel all the time? And, like, it was, like, funny and, like, in, in its way, like, oh, wow, that's... Again, like, it's just embarrassing that, like, it's 28, like, not to be the current year argument thing, but it's 2018, and the fact that you can legitimately ask that question, yeah, for comedic effects, but also kind of not, is just nuts. Well, again, Fast and the Furious, incredibly diverse, and it's one of the most successful non-comic book franchises going right now. Again, The the Rock... Let's be fair here. The only thing, the only reason that the Fast and the Furious isn't a comic book movie is that it's not based on a comic book. This I know that true. that sounds dumb, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I absolutely understand because 
I, I will admit I've only seen one of the Fast and Furious, but I understand the love that people have for it because it is, quite frankly, bug nutty. Uh, I, I, yeah, like, I, I'm glad that there is a universe where, like, Vin Diesel and The Rock can just have, like, super-powered car fights. <laughs> and Jason Statham shows up because... I, yeah, I don't, I'm really not, I'm never sure what to do with Jason Statham. Like, he seems very angry. He is, but uh, he's also doing the Meg, and I'm happy. That's, that's fair. Uh, but okay. yeah, like that, that, okay, so back to what we were trying to get at before, that like, the myth of monoculture, which I, I really like that way of stating it. Because I, I think especially, it, it's an even more, it, somehow, despite the fact that things like Black Panther exist, and are the biggest thing in the universe. Like, we we still do hold on to this, and the we that I'm using here is much more the sort of, the, the stereotype what we thought a, a nerd or a comic book geek was when we were still dumb enough to identify as that. Right. Like, our idea of what pop culture was when we were but young lads. Uh, that, like, oh, yeah, like, uh, it's it's just all of this stuff, and it's all, like, the, there's just this big pool of pop culture, and that and we just had this sort of amorphous blob, and, like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. Completely oblivious to, like, who is left out, and what stories are left out, and what types of, like, I think, especially studying uh, literature, and, and the, the, for the further I got into, like, studying modern literature and even pop literature, you start to see those divisions of, like, Oh well, this is chick lit. That's not real literature, right. or or just anytime you get into a specialty market and it gets put off in a little box and it doesn't get to be part of like the capital L literature or the capital C culture. Well, not only uh, that, but I remember back when we lived in the studio, I took an informal survey and I was talking to all the women I knew and asking them like, "What is your definition of a chick flick?" Because I, it's a term that came about but there was no real definition behind it and every woman i talked to had a different definition for it some of Mm. them thought it was derogatory and used it as such and others thought it was empowering and thought it was a great idea and it's one of the things where ready player one pays a lot of homage to a pop culture that is largely straight white and male there's no homages to uh say dirty dancing or footloose or I, I saw Dirty Dancing so many times as a kid. <laughs> there was no uh, homage to, I didn't see one anyway, to Sailor Moon, which I know is weird because I know more than women love Sailor Moon. Of course, yeah. Like, Sailor Moon is part of, like, the, like when I think of, of Saturday morning cartoons, Sailor Moon is on there. Like, that was before I even knew what anime was. I knew what Sailor Moon was. We had was. a huge thing with uh, bronies, and yet there's no My Little Punk. Like, there's a distinct sort of, like, there's a type of nerdy representative in Ready Player One, and it's yeah. like, this notion yeah, that... Red- Ready Player One, as I understand it, is basically just the McDonald's boy toys. Right. Like, not you can't have you can't have those girl toys. It's just the it's just the ones that are for boys. It's a it's, it's, a, it's a, a celebration of sort of a shallow culture because there's no dis, <laughs> there's no real disco, there's no Springsteen or any other type of eighties rock. It's all like the classic eighties rock. They like the oh. Like Twisted Sister, which is fine, but I got news for it. There are other bands besides Twisted Sister. There's no Public Enemy. There's uh, none of this. Of, like, of course there's no hip-hop. Of course there isn't. Well, well there's no hip-hop. There's none of it. There's no R&B. There's, like, there's an entire culture uh, that, that gets left out 
which would be fine, but this is the stuff that always gets left out when we talk about yeah. 80s and late 70s culture, unless it's specifically about... God, you know what? I'm just, I'm thinking about, like, how how to turn this into, like, a class syllabus in some ways. And I think Ready Player One would be very useful if you took everything that it references and forbid yourself from teaching about it. Just like, <laughs> okay, let's just teach the pop culture that was left out of Ready Player One. Like, let's... Like, obviously, these things are saturated enough to where they are readable as background references in a movie made out of nothing but background references. Like, I think I think using Ready Player One as a subtraction would be an, a phenomenal tool for looking at things that are underserved in pop culture. That would be amazing. <laughs> right? <laughs> Today, we're going to be Although talking I would, about Jam really... and the Holograms. I'd be really sad for uh, who's Jam. Jam is who I am. (laughs) She was truly outrageous. I think that's that's what is important for everyone now. You will never look and think of holograms and earrings the same way again. Although I think Jam and the Holograms came back recently too, either as comics or or a cartoon show. I don't I don't have cable anymore, so I'm not really sure. Comic and might have came back as a cartoon show. I do know that. There was this weird sort of love for the movie, even though the movie wasn't good. It was sort of nice and campy for what's it was almost like a modern day version of Josie and the Pussycats. Mm. It was also just not nearly as bug nutty as the original '80s cartoon because, <laughs> let's be frank, how could it be? The '80s cartoon dealt with an entire under. She had a back cave. <laughs> yeah, like nothing. Nothing can be as bug nutty as '80s cartoons and their various world famous pop music people. Because not only was there Jim, too sober and lacking any Prince or David Bowie to be anything like. Like not only was Jim there, but also Alvin and the Chipmunks were out there. You know, Uh, (laughs) because for some reason, like being a a pop music superstar was a was a regular occupation in like eighties cartoons. I guess I don't. Well, (laughs) I have a theory as to why we have such a fondness for eighties nostalgia. Uh, Okay, hit me. It is the first decade that is utterly and totally recordable in some way. Yeah, I could see that. Because VHS tapes, as we discussed, didn't really come out until 1978. So the the notion of recording didn't really start coming out until about the early 80s. And then the notion of preserving that didn't really come about until the early 90s. And then the internet happened. And the immediate decade preceding that is the 80s. I mean, there's also like I I like that read uh, because I I, I want to have a, a positive like techno utopian view of things sometimes. But there is also a darker side in that a lot of the entertainment that we watched as children became like feasible at all because of changes to broadcast standards bro- brought about by Reagan that allowed like children's programming to also advertise things. Well, not only that, but going back, the stuff that we watched is allowed to actually come out on VHS and DVD. Yeah, that is because, well. be, because before then, every generation has had that sort of, oh, they don't make them like they used to, but they didn't have a blockbuster to go to to check it out. <laughs> True. Like, the, like that's, that's what earlier, the... A movie came out, and then when I was out, went out of theaters, well, that was it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, people would go to insane lengths just to save like a little bit of something. That was one of the things like when I was real deep into Doctor Who, right. like the stories of people like 
there are episodes that we can reconstruct because people would record the audio off of the television like broadcast and like that was how they would just try and keep it and it's like just that amount of of ephemerality to to media is just alien to us now well yeah no like it goes back to like it's the first decade that's entirely recordable and entirely distributable onto recording devices that you can watch at home and then the internet comes along and it just blows up because i was talking to a guy at work who loves the 80s because his parents left the 80s i'm like yeah but Mm. every generation doesn't have the the uh, the luck and the yeah sort of ability to just take that stuff that you grew up with and just watch it. Like, I can go yeah. on YouTube and watch old television commercials and made-for-television specials that came out when I was a kid. People who grew up in the 60s don't have that. Yeah. And I think that... I feel like that ties into a lot of the the kinds of using nostalgia as a springboard that we were talking about earlier. Because, you know, like, when Star Wars or Indiana Jones were being made, they weren't like queuing up old movie serials or at least maybe you know maybe they had prints because uh, or had access to different like real prints or something possibly but like you, they couldn't just queue them up and be like oh let's do this exact right, thing like they were doing it like, from memory could, right yeah they could be inspired from memory and they could take you know inspiration from other movies and things that they've seen but that that filter of memory that separation I think does add something or, or give another, uh, give more of an opportunity to like, what can we build from these ideas as opposed to now where it seems a lot more of like, Oh, can we get this license? Can we make the, like, well, like you said before, the idea of remaking Buckaroo Banzai terrifies me. Don't do that. (laughs) Like make, make something as bonkers as Buckaroo Banzai. But of course I say that like it's easy, but then like, how do you get a studio to go along with that? It doesn't have a name. You need a name. Right. Like, well, not only ugh. that, but this goes into, like, basically how the studio system has now morphed into something to where uh, making independent movies is really, really hard. And mm. this goes into another topic we'll discuss later in terms of, like, how movies are distributed and made. Because there's a conversation going on now about Netflix and movies being released in the theaters and yeah. the legitimacy of Netflix. And where Steven Spielberg has come out bizarrely <laughs> saying, if your movie only comes out on Netflix, it's not a movie. And I'm like, yeah. buddy, you understand that Spielberg got it. His first job was in a studio. He grew up as yeah. an intern in a studio. He had, like, you don't get to talk. <laughs> Well, honestly, like this is this touches on another conversation that is very important to me, which is uh, the stay in your fucking lane conversation, (laughs) because Steven Spielberg is an expert at many things in regard to the craft of filmmaking. And I use those words very carefully, because just because Steven Spielberg can knock my socks off with uh, a, you know, well-constructed piece of cinematic art doesn't mean he knows shit about anything that's going on in how we interact with media today. Right. Why would he? He spends all his time around people making movies. Like, well, Steven Spielberg has never been a person whose only access to movies was at home through a computer <laughs> and sometimes through the movie theater when it's the cheap day that my student ID can get me into. Like, <laughs> Well, and part of this problem is with nostalgia is... When you watch an old movie, it's important to understand what's going on. One of my favorite movies that I've watched a lot recently in the last couple of years is a movie, as a Western called The Oxbow Incident mm. with Henry Fonda. It's a William Wellman movie. And it's a movie about a lynching. 
Ooh. made during a time when lynching was legal. Yeah. And now, now, granted, because of the time it was made, the lynching, of course, is not of a black man, but of a white man. Uh-huh. And there was one Latino, Latino being lynched, but it's Anthony Quinn playing Latino. Oh, of course. But like, Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's, it's problematic, but at the same time, it's a fascinating movie in terms of, like, because of its problematic aspects and what it's doing. Because the problematic aspects feed into the non-problematic aspects. Yeah. But, well, I mean, I feel like this is, to, to take a, a brief aside, I feel like one of the things that, that people who, ugh, this is going to sound a little pretentious, but people who don't talk a lot about media and are instead just mad about things on Twitter don't <laughs> seem to understand that, like, when something is discussed as being problematic, that isn't to say, like, burn it from culture forever. Right. That just means, okay, we're acknowledging that this thing has problems, almost as though the term was engineered to mean just that. Well, uh, but that we should pay all we should pay attention to both those problems and the other things that it does. Anyway, sorry, we're like no, no. I always get well, obsessed. I, I with bring that this idea. up because it is a thing that I I think some people would be shocked to find out that lynching was legal, and the yeah. fact that it was something that we had that as a society basically just allowed, and that there was a severe, almost never-ending, seeming like campaign to get the law repealed. Yeah. And Bad. it's one of the things where nostalgia has a way of sort of erasing. It's like what we saw that thing during the Republican convention a few years back of the guy making the argument that slaves, slavery was a good thing. It gave it gave blacks, black Americans, jobs and food. Oh God, I forgot about that. And that's oh. part of the problem with nostalgia is it watches, it smooths out the ragged edges and makes you think that the past yeah, is it's... better than the future because the future is so complex. And in reality, the two are really just a matter of time difference and really both are complex. Yeah, the past, and the past has all sorts of... anybody. <laughs> yeah, the past has all sorts of complex, dark things going on, but you're just talking about the past in soft focus. So right. we don't see all the edges. <laughs> in a movie that was unfortunately written and directed by Woody Allen... Um, oh God! <laughs> whose name I forget because I I, I block most of his movies. Uh, I saw one where Midnight, Mid uh, Walking in Midnight, Stroll in Midnight. It's a movie about uh, Owen Wilson goes back in Midnight time. in Paris. Midnight in Paris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about nostalgia, and he may, has a really good line of all that was really great back then, but they didn't have penicillin. <laughs> It's like the, you, you, so so much time is spent about oh the good old days. We often overlook about what's great about now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. The the questions of always like, what, who was it great for? Right. Uh, it's always exactly. the 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 rejoinder to for for pure hypothetical. If one were to rally around a chant of making some particular place great again, that's always <laughs> the question that one should ask: is who is it great? For. When right. was it great? How? What are you saying here? Right. Is <laughs> Purely it, hypothetical, of course. Can America be great? Only can we make it greater. <laughs> like what? Uh, it's one of the things where it's like not only who is in a great for it, but why is in a great for them? Yeah. What specifically? I, I, understand that All in the Family was made during the seventies, and there was an episode with Edith tried to get a bank account, and it was almost impossible because it was found upon for women to have bank accounts in the 70s. Yeah. 
man, ah, oh, God, All in the Family is another one of those shows that that ends up getting co opted by people saying like, oh, you couldn't make this show today. Well, I mean, people try. Well, but... here's the thing, and this is another topic almost entirely. And this it goes is like back it is a double edged And also, mm. I think I'm going to say something. Um, I don't think we're the snowflake generation, as we're so often called. I think no. we've just forgotten, you know, how to offend. <laughs> because all in the family, Archie's a bigot. It's yeah. made clear that he's a bigot. And he almost yeah. never wins at the end of the episode. And if he does, the victory is accompanied by a setback. Yeah. Well, I also feel like a lot of, like, I don't know. The people, <laughs> I don't want to be the guy that accuses other people of, of interacting with media wrong. Except I am that guy, and sometimes I should just embrace it. But I saw someone the other day, like, unironically on Twitter, seemingly unironically, posting an image of Al Bundy in a no-man shirt as emblematic of, like, me- the importance of paying attention to men's issues. Well, here's the thing. And I, I, hmm. Married to children, <laughs> much like All in the Family, Al never wins. No. And more importantly, when Al makes a scathing comment to a woman, the woman makes a scathing comment back. Right. It's a give he... and take. It's, <laughs> there's an interview with Ed O'Neill towards the end of Married Children in which the people, uh, the writer, there's a new writing staff, and they basically mm. do a joke that would have, that's like a joke they told in the old days, but it's mm. missing that important element. Like, it's still funny. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not just me calling her fat. She then has to make an insult about me back. It's right. understanding it, the, how you can offend shit, but if you're going to be equal opportunities, it has to be equal opportunities. And it has to be something shallow, like weight. It's not yeah. something... Uh, all in the family, very rarely, if I remember correctly. Again, nostalgia. <laughs> yeah. It's, all, it's understanding, like, not that we can't offend, is how to do it properly. <laughs> right. Offense is not in itself... Uh, offense... Uh, defense of offending in and of itself is bizarre. Right. To me. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Be offensive, I guess. But if you're going to be offensive for no reason and then complain when people call you out on it, that in itself is you being against free well, speech. Well, it's funny. Shows you like Married with Children <laughs> took all that in stride, and they loved right. it. Because they, lo- they were like, you realize, well, about as lowbrow as you can get. Well, on Fox. This is back before <laughs> Fox was a legitimate network. And they, by well, the way, I miss the days when shows did nothing but just absolute ridicule Fox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, that was a good time. Or was it? I don't know, because I was a kid then, and I, my memory of it is fuzzy <laughs> okay, at but best. <laughs> part of this, what this does, I think, is help put nostalgia in perspective. Because as yeah. we're sort of opining about the days of All in the Family and Marriage mm. and Children, there's also a thing where there are some instances in where the show's utterly misstepped. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the, the problem with Apu is a great exactly. uh, look at that. And it's an understanding of, so do you just... so. Does that mean you can't do married or children? No, it just means you now know what they did wrong, so you can tweak it. A perfect example, uh, Fresh Off the Boat. One of the best sitcoms on air right now. 
Yeah, I, and I mean, it's it's one of those things where the, the argument is always inherently, uh, here's a word that's overused in a lot of dumb ways on the internet, is inherently regressive. Right. Because if somebody says you can't do all in the family or you can't even do like married with children if we want to go super lowbrow, uh, but charming lowbrow, you know, it's fun. Right. Um, why would you? It's not then. It's right. now now. Like right. if you want to if you want to do edgy comedy, you have to do the edgy comedy of today. Right. And we know more about people's lives. And like it's if you just do what we would have done in the nineties, you'll end up making Iron Fist, you idiot. It'll just <laughs> suck. Right. You have to understand like, those shows worked because they recognized the time in which they're in. All in the family right. is a response to the seventies and the politics yeah. going on. Married to Children is a response to Phasia. <laughs> said, like the show's yeah. like Phaedra, that's what they wanted to not be. And that's what it is. Is and it is intentionally anti intellectual. Yeah, and it's I think here we we've kind of gotten into the uh, sort of gotten back to the limits of nostalgia because a lot of people will say they have nostalgia for these types of shows or for just Mel Brooks movies generally is one right. that I see thrown out in this kind of conversation. But they don't want to, they want not just to have those movies and those shows, but they also want it to be that time. Right. Because by and large, like people don't want to see that family of comedy, let's say, commenting on things happening now because now you're implicated. Well, not only <laughs> like, that, but it's not that the people are so easily offended now. I think no, what it is is nowadays, because of the internet, the people who are offended and who have been offended for the last 400 years probably now have a way to actually express the anger and offense. Yeah, everybody gets to be the sending angry. sending a letter to the editor, which can then be discarded if your name isn't Anglo-Saxon sounding enough. Yeah, now everybody gets to complain at the same level as the people who would go on letter writing campaigns in the 90s. Right, and it's one of the things where, and I'm like, I don't think it's, a, I think it's really just about the fact that the internet has exposed how we are astonishingly bad at living together. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. On a the, planet the inter- of some, what, three trillion people, the internet Seven. has exposed that we are utterly <laughs> incapable of just accepting the fact that the person next to us might not be us. Uh, I, I don't think we're at three trillion yet, but that's that's fine. <laughs> I don't know the number. It's a very, very, it's a bigly number. Fucking shoot me. I can't, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, you feel free to die in a fire. It's seven billion and change, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So nostalgia is a trap. The internet ruins everything. And uh, just stop 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 liking things and uh, and go into a hole and get off the internet. That's I think the lesson of today. <laughs> or you can stay on the internet because there's actually a lot of new shows on the internet. There, like actually, actually yeah. The, I don't I don't have cable. Uh, the internet is the only way I interact with uh, television. <laughs> right. It's it's weird. We might have gone off topic a few ways, but I think we cut. We got the cut. The essential one yeah, to talk about. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, uh, again, like I think if if we want to tie that ending point about the internet, like the internet is what explodes the idea of monoculture. Like exactly. the other reason, the other reason you can't do The Simpsons, even though they're still trying to, or you can't do All in the Family, or you can't do Married with Children, is those things relied on the the popular idea that there was a monoculture, and that's the other reason why you can't do those same kinds of things. You have to do new things. You have to do like Fresh Off the Boat, or you have to do you know any number of 
like that's why I'm sort really side eyeing the new Roseanne because it's like yeah. that's it's just going to be doing lip service to what we imagined like what we imagined Roseanne was from the perspective of now. It's just sad, right? And I, I and the the thing the thing to me, I actually I, I kind of want to end on that point because I think to me I haven't watched any of it yet. I'll, I'm sure I'll watch like an episode or two. But the the new Roseanne to me is I think the worst nostalgic impulse because it wants to to make the nostalgic thing from the '90s, but now instead of making something new. Well, just uh, piggybacking on that, all the shows that are getting rebooted from the '90s are white shows. Yeah. There's no in Living Single. In Living Color, you mean? No, no. I'm oh, sorry. Living Single and in Living Color. Living Single, yeah, Queen yeah. Latifah. Um, right, right. Living Single. There's no modern reboot. There's no Fresh Prince. No Fresh Prince reboot. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Like, there's no, <laughs> you, can do, you can still do a uh, different world. Uh, Sinbad's uh, out there. He's still kicking. He come back. Oh, God. Oh, do we do we need Simbad back? Is he the yes, hero we need for a different world? Absolutely, <laughs> I will take Simbad back, and I never stop loving Simbad. I mean, I'd be I'd be willing to go for it, but I, I largely remember him from like the the cheesiest worst parts of his career, and I don't know <laughs> what to do with that. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna end we're gonna end on Simbad. Sure, everybody. <laughs> Please join. Uh, don't hesitate to review and uh, like us on iTunes. Uh, check out the other podcasts on the Fanimentals, not include uh, up uh, including <laughs> Fanimentalists, Unabashed Book Snappery, Ladies First, and our very own Beneath the Screen of the, the other Ultra Critics. Yeah, yeah, that's what we are. <laughs> so, without further ado, uh, that's all the time we have. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, we didn't screw this up too much. <laughs> we'll find out in post, whatever. <laughs> if you're even listening. Alright, everyone have a good one. See you fast. Say goodbye. Farewell!